is all, he knows all. But who is Dr. Mabusa? I can see him now. Mabusa. Dr. Mabusa. Sex is love, as far as you're concerned. You're not a man, you're an animal. Spine-tingling excitement. here, he isn't there. He kills and kills without excuse. The fiendish and diabolical Dr. Mo Hello everyone and welcome back to the Bloody Pit. Today... A new guest on the show, someone who I've known at a distance for, um, my God, more than two decades at this point. We got to know each other along with a lot of other of our fellow European trash fanatics on uh, a Yahoo group years ago called European Trash Cinema Paradise. Uh, that has since extended it, 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 its life never really ends it gets resurrected currently it's it's it has another form but it's the same b beloved group of complete lunatics some of whom I have conned into being on podcasts before people such as Bob Sargent Mark Clark uh, one day I'll get Brian Sin in here as well but uh, along with a lot of other people commenting on these weird films that we talk about, is a man, a legend, a man named Holger Haza. <laughs> I think you're the only person who ever managed to pronounce my name correctly at first try. Uh, well, at, at first try is because I begged you to tell me how to pronounce the damn thing. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you did, but, you know, I... I'm, 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 print the legend, man. Print the legend. <laughs> well, I'm going, well, here's here's the thing. Uh, I am. Uh, it, it is part of my makeup to hideously mispronounce names from around the globe. Uh, one day, it is. It, I endeavor to completely mispronounce the name Robert just to keep on track. So, um, <laughs> Holger, we are here today to talk about a subject that. I have been a uh, I have been a fan of, but never really delved heavily into, and I'll, I'll admit until the past couple of weeks prepping to talk to you today about the subject. Oh, wow. I had not seen all of the 1960s Dr. Mabusa films. Some of them are more difficult to come by than others. Absolutely. That's what we're here to talk about today, mainly because you wrote a little uh, you wrote an ebook. I have it, of course, on my Kindle. I did. Called The Many Masks of Dr. Mabusa. Mabusa in the mm. 1960s. And uh, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a short little piece with your, with your thoughts on the uh, six 
Mabusa films that came out in the 1960s, um, one or two of which people may know. Others are, as I said, a bit more obscure, especially in the English-speaking world. But all of which are, I think, as you say, your, your conclusion in your own book, is that they're all worth seeing to a degree if you enjoy this kind of cinema. Maybe we should talk a little mm-hmm. bit about the period and exactly why they are the type of cinema that they are. Yeah, uh, the, the the fact that you brought back the uh, European trash cinema paradise Yahoo group uh, um, is actually quite important because for me that Yahoo group was the best thing that ever happened on the internet ever. <laughs> there was nothing that ever beat it before or after. Um, first of all, I met many good friends there, but also it exposed me to the idea that German cult movies are also appreciated outside of Germany, which is something that never, ever crossed my mind before. Hmm. Um, I remember we were discussing, we briefly discussed some Mabuse as well, but we discussed the Edgar Wallace movies, Jerry Cotton, Commissar X, and so on. And a lot of them were German co-productions with other countries, but, you know, it is kind of like German cult movies. So a while back, I wrote, I did indeed write this this little piece, Many Masks of Dr. Mabuse. It was originally supposed to be for a fanzine called Van Helsing's Journal, for which I'd written a little bit. But uh, just when I had finished that piece, um, the zine stopped publishing. So it lay around for one or two years and then COVID came. And um, well, I had absolutely nothing else to do. I uh, decided, you know, why not simply pop it into Kindle? Because it is 15,000 words. You did say it's, it's, it's quite short. It is basically too long for a blog post, but not long enough for a proper paper print, in my opinion. And... Uh, you know, I'd buy that for a dollar, so it's available for 99 cents on Kindle. And right now it's a Kindle-only thing simply because, you know, the 99 cent, I, I have no problem charging. Well, Amazon has no problem charging it. <laughs> um, but I probably wouldn't feel too good about having, you know, printing it. And, you know, then it's like 7 $8 and people tell me, oh, my God, you know, it's, it's only 15,000 words. Um, yes, indeed. So I'm, I was always fascinated by, by the whole Mabuse myth because... You mentioned that some of them are very, very difficult to get a hold of in the English-speaking world. In Germany, they're very, 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 very easy to get a hold of. And in fact, the first time I came across them, I was probably 12 or 13, and I saw the 1960s films on television. And um, I saw, if not all, then at least most of them. I definitely saw about four of them, maybe all of them on television. And I absolutely love them. And in actual fact, at, at that time, my favorite one would have probably been um, the second one with Lex, Lex Barker because he, he was a character called Joe Como. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, that was the coolest name ever. I mean, I was only 12, 13. <laughs> I barely started learning English. And, uh, you know, I was walking around. So what's your name? Hey, my name is Joe Como because that's a typical English name or American name or whatever. Because <laughs> obviously, that's so realistic. Of course. Of so course. I was always, always fascinated by... By, by those films, and then I actually only later on came to the uh, 1920s and 1930s um, Lang classics, and it's probably something that's very typical for for Germans. A lot of them would still be aware of Mabuse as a as, a, as an idea. A lot of them would probably still know the 1960s mm-hmm. films, and. The classics, yes, they would know, but they probably wouldn't have watched them, ironically, although they are the ones with the big prestige. Um, so inspired kind of like by the, you know, uh, Yahoo group and then, you know, writing this piece for Van Helsing's journal and later on self-publishing, I kind of like just went to this venture where I watched 
the rewatched the 1960s one again. First of all, also ended up watching the the, the classics, and it's absolutely. I find it absolutely fascinating because Mabuse as a character, at the time, he he's he's one of those arch villains, one of those anonymous arch villains who lurks in the background, has um, you know a million masks and uh, different disguises, and that kind of idea nowadays is a bit of a a dime a dozen, um, but at the time there was kind of like Moriarty, there was Fantomas, there was Fu Manchu. Yeah. Um, Mabuse is kind of like the germ, the Teutonic equivalent to that. Somebody who tries to amass fortunes and influence and power just to, you know, for for his own nefarious schemes. And initially in the 1920s, um, it was a character that was. Um, invented by a, a writer called Norbert Jacques. Norbert Jacques was German Luxembourgian. And he he wrote the book. Well, first of all, he wrote the serial. It was serialized, uh, Dr. Mabuse, The Gambler. And then very soon after, after it became such a massive success, it was picked up to be filmed by um, Fritz Lang and um, also developed by Fritz Lang's wife, then wife, Thea von Habu. Mm-hmm. And Norbert Jacques, nowadays is virtually unknown, um, even in Germany. He used to be incredibly successful, mainly over his Mabuse books. And um, he he must have come from, from a rich background because his honeymoon was a 16-month world trip. And he wrote a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of uh, travel literature, travel articles, and so on, until he finally hit pay dirt with, with Mabuse. And the Mabuse was... There was one book, one major book about Dr. Mabuse, The Gambler. He wrote a follow-up book that was the basis for um, uh, the original testament of Dr. Mabuse, but that follow-up book didn't see publication until 1950, but it was developed uh, together with the original testament of Dr. Mabuse. The film. And he also wrote a couple of novellas, short stories. Uh, He even tried to come up with a, a female Dr. Mabuse at one stage. And in his book... If you think that one of those typical arch-villains should be suave and, you know, men of the world, that's not Mabuse in the book. Um, in the book, he was he was heavy, he was sweating, he was um, basically, when he wanted to humiliate somebody, he made him drink so much alcohol that they threw up in front of him. <laughs> and... His goal, and that's a goal that actually never made it into into any of the films, was to amass such a fortune that he could set up his own colony in Brazil called Itopoma. Um, now, the, the success of the book was very soon eclipsed by the success of the original two films by Lang and Thea von Harbour. And I do say Lang and Thea von Harbour because I think together this husband and wife team really, really comp- contributed 50-50 to most of Lang's films. And Thea von Habu's um, role has probably been a little bit diminished. Um, yeah, for, for, dec- some may for decades. Say because, now, yeah. yeah, some may say because she was a woman and, you know, the woman's role is always diminished. I think the truth is also because she was a Nazi and we just didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, there is, <laughs> um, there is that up- aspect of it. That's Yeah, that's true. That's a, that's a, harsh, that's a harsh pill to swallow when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, it is. Um, but either way, they they, they they had a tremendous success with, with Mabuse. Mabuse was the, the first Mabuse, the gambler, was the first major success that, that Fritz Lang had. 
in Germany. He shot other films before, but he, that was the first major success. And in a way, it's uh, it, it's kind of like bookended then by The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse. So kind of like from his first major success to his last movie made, it's, it's, it's all about Mabuse. And um, then in between, of course, came, came The Testament of Dr. Mabuse, which was the last film that he shot in Germany and the second sound movie he shot after M. Uh, to, to my mind, I I have uh, I I know that for you you talked uh, you talked a little bit in the book and uh, uh, off off mic with uh, me about seeing uh, especially the nineteen sixties films on television when mm-hmm. you were younger. Uh, for my for my taste, I I don't remember when or which of the nineteen sixties films I first saw, but I know it had to be had to have been one of them. And I, at the time I saw it, I'm pretty sure that I assumed that it was just something that was part of the kind of overarching Euro spy slash Edgar Wallace crimi series that I was mm-hmm. just beginning to learn about sometime in the mm-hmm. 90s. And it wasn't until doing a, a bit more reading about these things that I discovered that, oh, no, no, that Fritz Lang made these two films, one in, you know, one in 22 and one in 1933 that are really the beginnings of the whole Dr. Mabusa thing. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until uh, Dr. Mabusa the Gambler came out on a DVD in the early 2000s that I was finally able to see that. And then soon thereafter, uh, a testament of Dr. Mabusa as well, and understand why these films were so popular. And they're just, they're, they're incredibly impressive pictures. And the, the range of uh, success that they had was so vast that. They really did cast this massive shadow across Germans, uh, German cinema to a degree, and of course, it is their influence that caused the producer who bought the rights to the character and made the uh, the series of six films in the, in mm-hmm. in the sixties. I mean, those films just enraptured him, especially apparently Testament of Doctor Mabuse. Mm-hmm. That's true. That producer was Arthur Brauner. Uh, Arthur Brauner was, a, was an immensely successful German producer. Uh, he was uh, he was Jewish, and he started uh, creating his own film uh, production company, CCC or CCC Films. Mm-hmm. And he had a vast amount of of different series. He he liked going back to to um, previously popular films and remake them and then create series out of it. And of course he was in competition with Rialto. Rialto was the company that um, produced the Edgar Wallace films and at and, and that time when the first Mabuse, the first new Mabuse movie came out um, he, he was kind of like looking for um, for a rival series to match the, the Edgar Wallace crimis. Arthur Browner, the producer, is known for being a massive Fritz Lang fan. Uh, he, he has said in the past, he, he actually turned nearly, I think he turned 100, he only died recently, he was working up until, up until the last moment. But he, he has said in the past that uh, it was the original testament of Dr. Mabuse that inspired him to get into films and to, to work in films, to become a producer. Uh, and um, he he wanted to bring Lang back to Germany because what happened was there is this there is this apocryphal story after the original testament of Dr. Mabuse where Lang was invited to to meet Goebbels. Of course, the story isn't true, but it's a good story because Lang was a a myth maker who 
basically, you know, told Danny's story to to um, to make himself look better. And basically, <laughs> he was invited to speak to Goebbels, and Goebbels basically told him, "Well, the testament of Dr. Nalbuz is not going to run in 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 the." newly formed Third Reich, so let's forget about that. But uh, Mr. Hitler wants to offer you the role of basically the head over the German Nazi film production. And Lang was, oh, that's, that comes as a surprise. You are aware I'm Jewish, or at least I'm half Jewish. And Goebbels then infamously supposed to have replied, well, wer Jude ist, bestimme ich. So wh whoever is Jew, that's going to be my decision. It's me who decides who's a Jew and who's not. You can have that role if you like. And Lang then apparently, um, you know, thanked him very politely and asked whether he could think about it for 24 hours. And uh, he could. And he left the office, packed his bags, and then headed off towards France and then later on towards uh, the U.S. right away. Not what happened, but it's a great story. But he ended up in the U.S. where um, he was part of the studio system. And, of course, he didn't have his uh, wife, Thea von Haber, with him because she stayed in Germany. And he never really ma managed to quite adapt to the studio system. He still made a couple of amazing films, but his, his output was, was quite uneven. I mean, he did do Scarlet Street, Woman in the Mirror, Ministry of Fear, and so on. So oh, yeah. really, really good films. But he, he just couldn't adapt to the studio system. He thought everybody should treat him the way he was treated in Germany. He should get carte blanche for anything he wants to shoot. And he was, he was bullying, he was, he was bossy, and everybody absolutely hated him. And he basically ran off the shoot of his last film and burned all bridges in Hollywood. And Browner then basically invited him back over to, to Germany, where he first of all um, made the... The Tiger from Ashnapur and the um, Indian Tomb, um, a duo of films that was previously shot in as a silent movie based on Fritz Lang's and Thea von Habu's scripts. And Lang had always assumed that he should have shot the silent version, but it was uh, taken off him by another director. So he, he, he welcomed the chance to to finally produce it together with Arthur Brauner. And then afterwards, Arthur Brauner offered him, hey, you know what, how about we continue the series of Mabuse movies? Um, and Brauner's idea at the time was, let's make it the son of Dr. Mabuse. And Lang thought that was pretty stupid, which in fact it was. <laughs> so uh, instead of the son of Dr. Mabuse, we ended up with uh, the thousand eyes of Dr. Mabuse in 1960. Uh, yes, and that... Uh I cannot remember I, I, exactly when I saw A Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa. I do believe it was the early 2000s. But Mike, mm -hmm. that, 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 the, first of all, the fact that there was a, you know, my goodness, a third Fritz Lang uh, mm -hmm. Mabusa film blew my mind. And that it was so, you know, that it was so, that it was in the 19, it was 1960. The fact that it was so far after the, the first. I mean, yes, of course, mm -hmm. there had been 11 years between uh, The Gambler and uh, mm -hmm. Testament. But at the same time, Wow, returning to the you know returning to the scene of you know your some of your greatest successes, uh, in a you know in a return to uh, your your mother country as well, and have it be such a good movie. Thousand Eyes just blew me away. I was mm -hmm. stunned by how good it was. It's such a a vital and alive piece of cinema, and it did not surprise me at the time, knowing as little as I did, that it had spawned five sequels. Of course, I did not know that that had been the idea from the outset. <laughs> the producer, in, mm -hmm. the producer in charge of this whole thing, uh, set out with that in mind, 
it makes sense. Uh, I mean, you, you, producers are, are no matter how much such such as such as the producer of this series of films was no 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 one is is doing this for the pure love of cinema the, the <laughs> desire to return to one's golden days of youth and and have those experiences and to participate in those experiences and to bring them to it no you're there to make money and so the <laughs> idea that this this was a vision straight out of the gate isn't much of a surprise but i am really happy to say that the well, let's put it this way. There are a number of these kinds of series of films. Uh, the one that I think of with most fondness is probably almost always going to be the, the Krimi cycle of this period, mm-hmm. starting in the late 50s all the way up through the early 70s. I absolutely love those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm willing to, uh, e- even even the worst of them, I'm willing to I'm willing to give a little bit of leeway simply because I, I, I enjoy the... Well, I enjoy what they're trying to do, even when they don't particularly succeed. And near the end of that run, there were some decided non-successes. But the uh, the the fact that there were this this series of crime films being made, and then the uh, the Commissar X films, and mm-hmm. uh, the basically all these little series of films that can fit beneath beneath this umbrella of you know German, for lack of a better term or lack of a term that I like less, uh, German trash mm-hmm. cinema. I love this mm-hmm. stuff. These are, these are adventure films. They're, uh, they're, you could call them B movies because, Hey, they were very budget conscious films, but man, these things are exciting and fun. And at the, and at the, at their peak, at the best examples of these films, especially some of the ones that we're going to talk about here in this Mabusa cycle, they are, incredibly entertaining mm-hmm. and what you say about um, you not being aware of this third lung Mabuse film is actually very very typical because if you ask any general film buff classic movie film buff who knows their stuff about classic movies from the silence up until now and so on what they identify with Mabuse, they would straight away say, well, you know what, there was the silent movie, The Gambler, and there was uh, Testament of Dr. Mabuse by Fritz Lang, blah, 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 blah. And that's usually it. If they're majorly into Fritz Lang, they may possibly know about the third one from 1960, Thousand Eyes, but then it generally stops. So what you're telling me is 100% the experience that I'm having outside of Germany. You know, if, if you if you talk to film buffs outside of Germany, it's it's either two movies that they mention at the most, very rarely, three. Yeah, I've even had people who are you know classic film fanatics mention the the two Mabusa films and then kind of Rook M, kind of into the conversation, mm. kind of as an automatic, as an it automatic an thing, <laughs> huh? Oh. Yeah, it starts with an M. <laughs> well, yeah, well, not well, not only that, but because it's it's as if those are the three crime films they know that Fritz Lang made uh, before you know before immigrating, and it's and it's one of those things where I wonder. Um, I mean, it, it's not as if um, it's impossible to find these things out, especially not in this day and age, for God's sake. But there, uh, to my mind, Thousand Eyes of Doctor Mabusa should be better known. Not just because, okay, mm-hmm. you know, capping a career, if you want to, if you want to put it that way, right? Mm-hmm. But because, as you mentioned earlier, it's a return to his initial gigantic success at the beginning of his career, and mm-hmm. uh, a kind of, you know, uh, sticking a sticking a sticking a flag in the ground and and kind of pointing around at everyone and going, see, I can still do this. 
what are you going to do now? What are you, what, how can you exactly. measure up to this? Yeah. And, and out of curiosity, how, how did you, how, how are those films available in, in, let's say, the U.S. where you are? Because, as I said, in Germany, they're very easy to get a hold of. How, are there any good, decent releases that you have? Or I'll be honest, I did not do a really quick search. Just Right, right now, I don't think that any of the six of them so. are commercially available, like on Blu-ray or anything of that nature over here. Uh, uh, I What I have is the, uh, the uh, now more than two-decade-old uh, DVD of Thousand Eyes. And I have mm-hmm. a um, a three film set that was put out by retro mm-hmm. uh, put out by uh, Retro Media sometime mm-hmm. probably at least fifteen years ago, which has three of the mm-hmm. later films, including the very okay. last one, and the other two, which uh, as far as I can tell, never had English dubs. I had to track down via the uh, the legendary special antenna the special antenna it's a sh- it's a shame it's a shame it's the same problem we're having with the edgar wallace creamies that uh, although there's fantastic prints available in germany um not all of them are english friendly mm-hmm. and and it's it's a real shame it's a real shame well i mean what i will i i have luckily i have friends in germany and a few years ago one of them was kind enough to send me over uh, a, a couple of those uh, those crimmy sets uh, and he concentrated on the ones that uh, had the most English options. There's one of the sets mm-hmm. that he sent me that uh, all three of the films had uh, English either in a dub or sub mm-hmm. choice, and another where only one of the films didn't have that option. But uh, yes, the films on those Blu-rays from Germany they look phenomenal. I mean, and, and that makes it very clear that these films have wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful source prints, at the very least, yeah. if not, you know, access to the, the the negatives. So there are, it is, it would be very possible for an enterprise, enterprising, either American or British company, to get their hands on these films, and put out amazing ver, you know, amazing versions of them. Hopefully, packed with all of the extras that I wish were on those German discs, because unfortunately, they are fairly bare bones. Kind of giving context to them, uh, the Edgar Wallace, mm-hmm. uh, the Edgar Wallace background presents enough that you could, you, Lord knows, you could build a, an entire series of uh, commentary tracks and and behind the scenes, uh, you know, evocative, vi- visually stimulating documentaries about the productions of these films. You know, mm-hmm. considering that there is a fair amount that is known about them, and some of it was obviously archived. But at the same time, I wonder uh, a good bit about. The, the, the three things that might be blocking that. As much as I want them over here, I don't know how much call there would be. I don't know how successful releases of those films would necessarily be. Uh, mm-hmm. Who knows? I mean, the the gothic sets that different companies are doing these days are doing gangbusters, but there is a certain built-in audience for that that everyone already kind of knows to a degree. So that's an easier sell than something along the lines of, hey, there are these really, really entertaining <laughs> German crime films made in the 50s and 60s that you've never heard of in your entire life, film watcher, and I guarantee you you'll enjoy them. But as I've said to you before, Holger, I mean, to my mind, if you just plant them down, show them one of them. They'll be like potato chips. They'll want to do what what I always have always felt, which is I just want to watch them one after the other because they are so fun, entertaining. There's so many twists and turns. There's so many uh, unforeseen paths that the, that the storylines take. They're, they're fast, they're fun, they're funny, and uh, I just have to think there is a, an audience out there for it, but 
I don't know. Also, I have no idea how high yeah. the licensing fees are you know, that are being asked by the rights owners for these things to, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, uh, put out additions outside of Germany. That could be a, a prohibitive thing as far as cost is concerned. And so there are a lot of different things that make me wonder uh, if we'll ever get my... <laughs> well, it's, it, it, as, as I've said to a number of people, I have a number of weird little subgenres of European weirdness films that I wish could get a little bit more attention over here. And, of course, I'm still stunned that there hasn't been a push to do a long series of the very much connected to what we're talking about Eurospy stuff. Uh, It was a very short-lived blast of films there for a few years before Bond, you know, the first wave of Bond mania in the 60s kind of burned itself out. But there were so many of them produced. And don't get me wrong, we've all, we've all who are interested in this stuff seen plenty of bad Euro spy films. (laughs) Um, it, I, I, you know, it, it, some some of them can make it work, and some of them cannot. But there are enough good examples that I would love to see that kind of stuff brought to a wider audience here in the, you know, the the the, the high definition age. I would think that it could that, that they could sell. But beyond just the Eurospy stuff, there's the Edgar Wallace stuff, the the related things like this series we're talking about, the Commissar yeah. X films, the Jerry Cotton uh, movies, which I think are incredibly entertaining. You know, of course they Absolutely. they are very much in the Eurospy category. But yeah. when you start looking at this stuff, these movies were built to travel around the world. They were not supposed to be just. German homegrown product for the home country. These were made to be very audience pleasing worldwide. And and that's why I love those productions. Not only were they often co-productions, like especially in this Mabuse series, the last one is is quite clearly a co-production. But also acting wise, there there are, there are a lot of um, actors often in it with with international backgrounds oh, yeah. and uh, making sure that they can sell them to France, to Italy, to to mainly the Euro- the continental European countries, but making sure that there is a bit of a crossover there. I, th- I think there are there are a lot of easy ways to sell this uh, to sell these mm. films. If I, if I were to take the tack of trying to introduce people to these, of course I would. Let's, let's try to sell somebody the thousand eyes of Dr. Mabuse. <laughs> well, yeah, how would you sell exactly. it? What, how, 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 how would, I sell how would it? you introduce it? What is it about? Tell me. From your eyes. The, from your thousand the, eyes. The, 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 the film <laughs> itself is, well, there, there, there are two paths I would choose, and it would, have, it would, it would depend on uh, mm. who I was talking to, whether I would choose one or the other. One path would be the final work of the great Fritz Lang. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. returns to the scene of the crime, not just Germany, but to the character that made his career mm-hmm. and, and amps everything up while still bringing all of the uh, all of the the grit and subtext that he was uh, initially putting into those uh, both the silent film and Testament of Dr. Mabusa. This is the great cinema auteur giving us one last blast of his creative juice. That came out wrong. That sounded very sexual, and I apologize for that. Uh, please don't get the image in your head that I suddenly gave myself. I apologize. Or I would try the tack of Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa is essentially a German 
James Bond film before the James Bond films existed. Oh, that's an interesting take. I mean, because it, it is the the uh, it, it, there isn't a you know there isn't really a central uh, you know spy who is the focus of the story. The story mm-hmm. is much more focused on the you know the crimes of the villain of the piece, but. Mm-hmm. That fits very comfortably within the the James the James Bonds uh, films, uh, especially something like Goldfinger, where it is is almost always the villain that drives the story, and of course, the the name of the name and the title is of the villain of the piece, not the hero, and so. I would try to pitch it in that direction, especially for someone who was kind of looking for uh, an answer to the question of well, what you know, what is this? What would it be most like that I have had experience of before? And and I think the way you present it is actually very interesting, and it's it's kind of like an an angle I hadn't really thought of before, but it's totally true that in a way the Mabuse films are very much like what if Spectre was telling the story. Yes. Because the whole idea of Mabuse it's, is that uh, he's one of those megalomaniac arch villains. And the focus is very, very much on seeing him or his his, his anonymous operation at work. Mm-hmm. Funny that you mentioned Goldfinger, though, because um, well, yeah. <laughs> we, we actually have Mr. Goldfinger, Gerd Fröbe, in this film. Um, on the good side. On the good side. So he, he, play, he plays um, Inspector... Cross, cross, uh, in, in in this movie, and uh, he he's basically there to solve the mystery. Although he doesn't really solve the mystery, there's a lot of other people <laughs> who who help him with it. But um, Gertrude at the time was um, was an immensely popular German actor, and uh, it's uh, it's after Goldfinger, which was a couple of years later, that he became internationally famous as well. He actually started his career uh, spindle thin, if you believe it or not. Um, in a movie called Berliner Ballade, Berlin Ballad, um, where he uh, plays a character, character called Otto Normalverbraucher, which even up to this day is kind of like, um, you know, synonymous for the man on the street, just an ordinary citizen walking around the ruins of Berlin. And then he basically became incredibly popular as an actor, and the more popular he became, the more weight he gained until we have uh, the Gerd Fröbe that we uh, all know and love. And of course, he had an amazing international career. Hence again, the the connection to, you know, internationally successful um, uh, uh, films. Uh, he was in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Those Magnificent yeah. Men and the Flying Machines, and of course, in, in, in Goldfinger. And his 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 uh, Commissar Kras is, is kind of like a typical Teutonic figure of authority at the time. Uh, he's like very direct, very grumpy, far from being empathetic. Uh, at one stage, he he basically interrogates uh, kind of like a, you know somebody, a, a woman who Don Adams who tried to commit suicide uh, very abruptly while she's still recuperating. Uh, constantly yeah. smokes pipes and reads books about the psychology of crime, and um, he's 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 a fascinating char- character. Um, we should probably say there was also. The, you know, Mabuse himself is, is played by Wolfgang Price, who um, in Germany is probably best known for being Mabuse. He was in most of the Mabuse films to more or less degrees in well, the 1960s. He, it's, it's, again, it's kind of, he, he, he's kind of there in the last couple, you know. I th- yeah, the, the last one he's prominently mentioned, but he actually doesn't, fe- doesn't feature at all. I know. <laughs> um, but in this one, he has two roles. Um, 
And um, on the one hand, he plays a, a psychotherapist who looks after Don Adams' character mm -hmm. after she tried to commit suicide. And that, that psychotherapist, I don't know if it's just me, but he reminded me immensely um, about Doctor Strange. I thought, oh my God, you know, <laughs> she should have played Doctor Strange. Oh, so yeah, but, you're, you're not you're not wrong. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there would have been good casting in the '60s. That's true. Yeah, but he but he also plays um, okay. Is it spoilers? We probably have to. Uh, well, that. yes, p folks. We're probably going to dance along the edge of spoilers on all six of these films. But to be clear, these films they they can't be spoiled. They're fun. <laughs> You're yeah, absolutely. Because because the thing is, it's very difficult to talk about uh, Wolfgang Price and Mabuse without talking about the main other character he plays. Because if we don't tell people that he plays a blind white-haired, hawk-nosed Irish medium called Peter Cornelius. Mm -hmm. um, we'd have nothing to say because, you know, he, this, this is his most prominent role. He plays basically two, two characters, the psychotherapist and, that, and that, that Irish medium. And, he's, and that Irish medium is like so well-masked. That's why it's a shame that we have the spoiler. You probably wouldn't recognize him. But then again, a lot of people who listen to this don't even know who Wolfgang Price is, although he was very, very popular in, in international productions as well, mainly in the aristocratic military roles generals he, he you know he was in um von ryan's express a bridge too far uh yeah. boys from brazil the train and so on so yeah a lot of people probably won't know him that well anyway so it's probably not that much of a spoiler but he 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 is amazing in both roles both as the 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 blind medium and the um psychotherapist who strangely enough always pops in whenever don adams characters the suicide victim is uh is needing help yeah it's it's uh, it, his his ability to just kind of walk through the door whenever there's some kind of emotional distress yeah. if this were a different type of film there would be a part of me that would think that he was just a figment of her imagination to be honest yeah <laughs> and when it comes to when it comes to fritz lang we should also mention that the opening scene which is a murder in a very very busy on a very very busy road from one car to the other yeah. is actually pretty much copied from his original testament of of, of dr mabuse and um it it makes sense it makes sense because the mabuse in, in this 1960s film is actually not the same one as the mabuse from the early movies at least in the first one, and then it kind of becomes a little bit wishy-washy and yeah, everything. They, you know, start, they, start to, they start to muddle up the timeline a good bit. And, very, you know. very, very much so. And we, we'll probably talk about this with the other films as well. But the Mabuse in this particular production, The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse, is a copycat. And the reason why he actually chooses that method of killing somebody is because he wants to make the police aware that Mabuse is back on the prowl and he wants to kind of like pretend he's still the same guy although it's it's effectively a copycat who who uses the old Mabuse's methods mm -hmm. to um, create his own empire well I'm fascinated by the the, the literalization to a degree of the title which mm -hmm. you know boils down to the <laughs> the Luxor hotel that so many of the characters stay in that uh, essentially is just outfitted, and apparently this is traces. This traces back to um, the Nazis during World War II. It was outfitted originally mm -hmm. by them to spy on people in every room in the building, and uh, mm -hmm. that's the 
thousand eyes. And it's 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 a fast it's a fascinating uh, thing, and it's kind of weird that that kind that that kind of a, a potent idea wasn't played with more in different ways in in these kind of films until years later. But it is it's really effective here because it essentially gives us the uh, the web at which Mabusa is the center. He can sit in a control room and and see what's going on and even hear it in every room in this place, which of course makes it really easy to be able to predict a lot of things, especially when you're going <clears throat> you're going to be predicting crimes that you're planning to take place <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. yeah. So basically, we have this hotel Luxor that everybody stays in a luxury hotel and that is totally um covered from 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 top to bottom with with um uh, hidden cameras which is a very 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 modern concept in a mm-hmm. way because we're now used to and this is the beauty of of mabuza especially if you go back to the 1920s mabuzas as well uh, i i caught myself thinking oh my god we're 100 years after the first mabuza movie was shot and we're still living in this state of paranoia of fear of of you know having anonymous uh, sources looked after us and right. conspiracies and all this kind of stuff. And the Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse is very, very much still st- maybe even more modern than, than at the time because nowadays we're living in a society where everything is being monitored and there are cameras everywhere. And um, this was one of the first films, maybe the first, I don't know, I didn't look that much into it, but one of the first films that really, really had this whole idea of you know, certain parts of society being totally uh monitored um in this case in the hotel and of course as you say it is based on on on, on a real hotel it was the hotel Ar- um adlan in berlin mm-hmm. um which especially then in 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 eastern germany eastern german times was known as being the most monitored place of of all times uh because they had all the vips come come to east east berlin and and stay there and uh, it does create an immense atmosphere of of paranoia to to see that we're in a space where everybody knows everything they're doing well this is a a subject that the the series plays with a couple of times down the road too. the the ability to to watch while uh to to watch others while you're you are yourself not being observed is Mm -hmm. uh is kind of fascinating um we should maybe mention the fact that Although we're going to talk about a number of actors in these movies that that reoccur, they are almost never playing the same character. Although mm-hmm. in some cases they seem to be playing the same character who magically has a different name now. So um, you're, we've we've introduced the the uh, Henry Travers character played by Peter Van Eck, and he comes back into the series in the last couple of them, uh, playing a different character in each of the last two films that he's in, even though, honestly, they probably should just have named the character the same in both movies because he's he's playing essentially the same character in those last couple. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think we're b- b- fast-forwarding to the last two movies, the the, the second last uh, um, Scotland Yard vs. Dr. Mabuzo was based on a novel by Brian Edgar Wallace, uh, Edgar Wallace's son, and... Yeah. The last one, then, although he Peter van Eyck effectively played the same character, but he has a different name. I suspect that maybe Arthur Browner simply didn't have the rights to the character because that character in Scotland Yard was Doctor Mabuza is a Brian Edgar Wallace character, which makes sense. Um, so yeah. maybe that's what. But it, it, it is indeed the fact uh, the fact that we have all those actors coming back in all different kinds of roles. Uh, Peter van Eyck 
in in Thousand Eyes, I don't want to say he's the hero because I don't think the film actually has a hero as such. He has, you know, there's there's people who fight on the good side and on the yeah, bad side, please. but nobody really who actively is the is the hero. So he's he's a good guy. He's he's like a millionaire who uh, tries to buy um, um, an uh, atom reactor, nuclear reactor um, that Mabuza tries to um, destroy. <laughs> Strangely enough. And and I can't figure out why. When we first get introduced to the Peter Van Eyck character, he too has a different name. I think he's introduced as as Turner in the first scene, and then afterwards he's Travers. So like yeah. everybody in that Thousand Eyes of Doctor Mabuse seems to have like covert identities. And in the case of Peter Van Eyck, I'm I'm not sure what the what the point is. But um, Peter Van Eyck is, is is a fascinating character in a way because he and Arthur Browner, the producer, had met before under. Not so pleasant circumstances because Peter van Eyck is German-born, but emigrated to the U.S. in the 1930s and became um, a U.S. citizen. And after the war, the Allies originally did not want Germany to have a film industry again. And Peter van Eyck was basically hired by the the the, the American military by the Allied forces. Um, for either permitting or denying uh, film permits. So Arthur Browner came over to him in the late 1940s or thereabouts uh, for permission to um, shoot a film. And Peter von Eyck at the time said, no, absolutely no way. You're not going to shoot a film. And in actual fact, Peter von Eyck was, has, has had at the time stated that the Germans had better not think about making any films for the next 20 years if they knew what was good for them. Wow. Of course, and afterwards, there was, you know, there was gradually, there was a film industry, a lot of popular entertainment movies. And uh, whatever he said at the time no longer applied because he became a film star in Germany as well. <laughs> um, but at the time, he basically denied Arthur Brauner um, a film permit. And then 15, 20 years later, yeah, 15 years later, or thereabouts, he was then hired by Arthur Brauner um, to appear as the nominal hero, if you like, um, in Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse. I, I've always been impressed by this guy's, mm. by uh, Peter Van Eyck's, is it Ix or Ike's? Now I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, Ike. I think it's Ike. Okay. Peter Van Ike. Ike. I, I've been impressed by his his long career because uh, he I, I, his face stood out to me from a number of films that I had seen him in over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, strangely enough, of course, uh, a Tarzan film with uh, Gordon Scott. But uh, Oh, really? I, I can't remember if I saw that one. Oh yeah, Tarzan's Hidden Jungle. It's uh, one of Gordon ah. Scott's Tarzan films. Yeah, yeah, I remember mainly from uh, internationally from Hammer's uh, The Snorkel. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, but he was also, I mean, he, he he was in Alfred Hitchcock's Presents the TV series. He was in an episode in mm-hmm. the first season of that. So yeah. there there comes this point where you're looking through his uh, his uh, long list of credits and you realize. Oh, I've seen this guy in this and this and this and this and this. And so you get to a point where I could never tell you if I remembered him from something like The Longest Day. But I definitely mm-hmm. remember him from the bizarre <laughs> the bizarre uh, Freddie Francis film, The Brain, which is you know mm. an, another adaptation of Donovan's Brain. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I, I I went way out of my way years ago using the special antenna to find myself a copy of that because I was trying to watch all of the adaptations of Donovan's Brain for no good reason whatsoever other than I get on these jags. Um, I kind of like once had the same idea. I didn't quite <laughs> follow through on it, but yeah, 
it's, it's, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah, brothers under the skin, my friend. Brothers under yeah. the skin. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, he's in films like, like my goodness, Spy came in from the cold, and and just so many films where you realize, okay, I remember him from Shalaka, which ain't a great film, but he's memorable in it, and it's 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 he's one of those actors who who seems to have been able to do a lot of things. And I'm going to have to say I agree with the, your general consensus about his role in the final film in the series, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the Death Ray Mirror or the Death Ray mm-hmm. of Dr. Mabusa. Uh, and just, you know, not not to... I, I, we're, obviously, we're going to end up jumping around, and I apologize for that, folks. But mm-hmm. the, char- the character that he plays in that... Um, He's not really suited for. He's not really <laughs> suited to play a man of action. And that's that's more a bit of miscasting than it is a statement about the actor mm-hmm. himself. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like your idea that they really should have tried very hard to get Lex Barker to play that role and it would have probably, Absolutely. Lex Barker would have been perfect. Yeah, he it would have amped it would have amped things back up and then it would have been, you know, Lex Barker's third appearance in this series. <laughs> Instead, instead of Peter Venix, so it becomes a question of, um, so you know, we 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 can we can talk about that last film more in detail later, but it, it mm-hmm. is uh, it is fun to see these actors reoccur, but it is so odd to to go, oh, I know him, oh, that's his name now, and the <laughs> the weirdest is of course that switch from Thousand Eyes, uh, for for Inspector Cross suddenly becoming. Uh, Inspector Lohman. And yeah, and the things like he is pretty much the same character, but he changes names now. Yeah. Lohman was, of course, the name of the inspector both in Fritz Lang's M and in the testament, the original testament of Dr. Mabuse. So it's a, all of a sudden they were like, okay, let's take the name of the original, which of course confuses the timeline totally. Yeah. Nobody ever planned. To have those films watched and rewatched and analyzed and discussed, they were literally just popping on the market six months later, a month later, have another one. Nobody's going to compare them and so on. But knowing that all of a sudden in the second film, Furby's character is called Loman, and it's the same name as the ones from whatever forty years prior, it's like makes no sense. Is it maybe the son of Inspector Loman? Son know, of Loman. The son of Loman. Couldn't get away with son of Mabuza, but maybe it's the son of Loman. It's really, really strange. It's really strange. It is. One character, one actor we should probably mention, given that we are talking about all those actors who reoccur, is Werner Peters. Because Werner Peters, if I count this correctly, he was in four of those six in fairly prominent roles, more or less. Yeah. And in a way, given that prices appearances were often in the later ones non-existent or very very marginal in a way that actually makes Werner Peters the actor who appears the most in that series and always in totally different characters and Werner Peters he again you know in Germany very well known at the time he uh, first appeared as uh, as um, kind of quintessential Kaiser Wilhelm career bureaucrat in in an adaptation of Heinrich Manns der Untertan, yeah, Man of Straw, I think it is called in 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 uh, in, in English, and um, then had lots and lots of roles. He appeared in Krimis, he appeared in German productions. He was the um, 
gay antique dealer in Dario Gento's The Birth of the Crystal Plumage. And here in this particular part, he has, yes, kind of like a, 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 at first glance, a very comical role. But of course, we need to remember that everybody, everybody, even, even Commissar Cross, um, kind of like sometimes has you know, a second identity. So um, at first glance, uh, his his character, um, Hieronymus B. Mistelzweig, um, is, is an insurance salesman with a difference because he only sells um, insurances based on uh, an astrological basis. So you ask the customers, yes. um, you know, what star sign they are and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but there is a little bit more to him than meets the eye. Say no more, say no more. Very true. Um, yes. and, and and he indeed he he features in in four of those six films, um, in totally different characters, and most of the time in fairly prominent support supporting roles. And strangely enough, considering what I expect him to play, usually on the right side of the law, I'll just say usually, so we can usually uh, we can we can we can we can, <laughs> uh, we can keep the so, you know some some bit, some bit of the spoilers uh, you know uh, a little fuzzy. How's that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but. The, to, to, to move on to the to the uh, second film, The Return of Dr. Yeah. Mabuza from 1961. Absolutely. So it's a year later. We get, uh, of course, you know, Fritz Lang is is off. He's gone. And uh, the producer uh, sets to with his dream of creating uh, an entire series of these films. And I have to say, his, his, his first post-Lang reintroduction is a pretty damned good film. I think Return of Dr. Mabuse, or whatever title you see it under, um, is, is I think it's great. I think it's an exceptional film, yeah. incredibly entertaining. Uh, I love... I love the way it begins with, with Inspector Lohman, you know, all ready to go off on a fishing holiday. We meet, we meet his wife and his children, and he's mm-hmm. da, 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 da. and it reminds me so much of the same kind of thing in uh, you know dating back to probably the silent features, but most recently for me, seen in one of the uh, Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes films, where it's like, mm-hmm. ah, oh we're, yes, we're, we're off to the holiday. I'm off to a well-deserved holiday, and guess what? <laughs> no, you're not, because crime doesn't wait for anyone, my friend. And here we have all kinds of crap just breaking loose because that wily Chicago syndicate has decided to start spreading its tentacles into your country as well. <laughs> this is so much fun. The this this he gets word he, he gets word from Washington D.C. that a female representative of the syndicate is currently in Europe to meet up with European criminals, and the FBI is sending over Special Agent Joe Como. To uh, to work with German my man, oh yeah, my man, played by Lex Barker, of course, and uh, so to to my mind, of course, the first time I saw this movie, I was like, ah, so we've got Goldfinger working with Tarzan. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Now let's talk a little bit about Lex Barker. He was an American. He was an American uh, uh, actor who uh, the more I learn about him, the more I'm just really so apparently he was fluent in many languages. And so working in Europe was not difficult for him. Uh, the uh, he was a very handsome man. He had mm-hmm. played. Uh, he'd been the, the actor who followed up Johnny Weissmuller playing Tarzan in America. He'd been uh, Tarzan in five movies in the fifties and mm-hmm. uh, had, had seen his, uh, his prospects for, uh, major stardom you know kind of dry up or become a little bit more difficult than he thought it should be and so he shifted focus to working in uh similar types of productions in europe 
And mm-hmm. boy, was that a smart move because for more than 20 plus years, my goodness, um, I know him now. When I think of Lex Barker, it's one of two images. And it's, I, I hate to say it's not from the, the from the Mabusa films. When I think of Lex Barker, I see him either as Tarzan or as old Shatterhand in the Winnetou films. Uh, Absolutely. Those, and for me, he was yeah. always old Shatterhand. As I said, yeah. 12, 13 years of age. At that stage, I have already seen the Karl May Westerns because, I, I mean, that's, that's the interesting thing about the, the, the German cult productions at the time. They often did things that the Italians then afterwards did differently yes. and more successfully. They introduced the Krimi series that kind of like often had giallo elements at the beginning and then later on the you know the Italians basically copied the idea that oh you know what we're going to do giallos and then the Germans were actually the first nation that proved that you can shoot a western outside of the US and then later on oh the Italian shot Italo western and it became more successful with it but yeah I love the the homegrown German um, western series based on author Karl May where he did play old Shatterhand but he also played another um, Karl May character, and that's another series that um, is, is virtually unknown outside of Germany because Karl May didn't just write westerns. He also wrote adventure stories based in um, uh, kind of like around Turkey, Kurdistan, and so on. So more like a, you know, a Middle Eastern flair. And there he had a character very much like old Shatterhand called Kara Benemzi, um, and he, and Lex Barker also played him in a series of films, oh, and okay. it, it's one of those. It's, it's one of the other things that I always want to kind of like you know point people to find. So you know the Karl May Western at last. Um, now try to find the um, you know Turkish Kurdish um, adventure movies that were also featuring uh, similar stars, similar directors, and so on. Uh, so I knew him as as Ochata, and I knew him as Carbon Emzi, and then afterwards I knew him. As Tarzan, I saw the Tarzan movies also in my teenage years, but I saw them mainly because I I, I was I, I was big fan of of Lex Barker at the time. Well, the the whole if just as an, just as an aside, I'll have to admit that I think that the German westerns during that mm-hmm. were made during this period uh, is another completely unexplored unexplored area yeah. for uh, for wise DVD labels blu-ray labels to explore because uh, so many there let's put it let's put it in simple terms if mm-hmm. you show someone the treasure of Silver Lake from 1962 I think mm-hmm. they're going to want to see more of those films and I think the Winnetou films all those characters mm-hmm. all the Winnetou, the, the Winnetou films the uh, the films in which Barker plays old Shatterhand along with Winnetou and then without him all of those movies uh, are well worth people's times and anyone who's interested in the, the spaghetti western stuff yes the German stuff has a very different flavor, uh, but it is yeah. they are still European produced westerns. And if you enjoy Absolutely. spaghetti westerns, especially the ones made primarily in the uh, the mid '60s, you're gonna yeah. know what you're looking at. And my God, they're entertaining. I love those movies. Ah, they are childhood favorites. Childhood favorites. I love the Joe Como character because in in this particular film, he he can basically do anything. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, he has three different aliases. Well, I mean, Joe Combs is his real name, but he has two other aliases. Uh, but the Nick movie, but the the movie plays with whether or not you know the movie 
plays very coy with whether he's on the right or the yeah. wrong side of the law. And it's and it's really it's cool. a kind of world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How many masks are you wearing? Possibly yeah. three. Who knows? But the funny thing is also, you know, you, you said that he, he spoke so many languages. In this film, he's also a lip reader. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's a lip reader. And in one scene, he pretends to be an anti-vaxxer to get into uh, the... Um, uh, Mabuza Slayer. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, this this movie has so many things. I I, I, I don't want to spoil very much of the story because I think yeah. it's just an astonishingly good film. And uh, except for the fact that it would be uh, anyone anyone coming to these films would be a fool to not start with Thousand Eyes. This would be one that I would gladly throw on the table first and say honestly, you might want to back up to Thousand Eyes. This one will really get you interested because. It this moves. was my favorite at the time. <laughs> oh well, it's it moves like a shot. Not that all of them aren't pretty, pretty damn fast paced, but mm-hmm. this one has so many things that are are, are, are simply amazing. And and, and the, the cast is is standout. I mean, first of all, I have had uh, the 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 heterosexual drools for Dahlia Lobby for so many decades that I might as well just go ahead and get my card punched and move on because she's stunningly beautiful. And mm-hmm. I, I used to always think that, uh, well, I think she probably was at her most gorgeous and most charming in the, the, in the, uh, the Dean Martin, Matt Helm film that she mm. was in, the first one of those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that may have just been because it was in color, and it was just that much more impressive to see her in color. But then I look at her in films like this, and I'm thinking, no, she was always, it didn't matter. Maybe black and white's more suited to her uh, her astonishing features. I don't know. But I, I'll stop I'll stop slavering now. Well, she was also she was also in Germany and an incredibly popular singer. She she's uh, she's Israeli, but she had a tremendous career in Germany as a singer and as an actress. Which is, I did not know until just recently about the music. Yeah, no, she was incredibly popular. There's lots and lots. It's those kind of like, we call it Schlager, which is those kind of like uh, German Euro pop songs. Yeah. And um, she she sang lots and lots of those classics. She was incredibly popular in the 60s and 70s See, as a I, singer. I, I, I knew her mainly as a singer than thought, as an actor. Oh, really? Because I foolishly no, I, thought... Initially, I knew her more as a singer, yeah. See, I foolishly thought that the the music that I knew that she had had that she had uh, she had done was done, you know, as kind of you know like tie-ins to certain movies or things that she'd done. Mm-hmm. I had no idea how big her musical career was. That was she was huge. Yeah, she was huge. Yeah, no, she was absolutely huge. One thing we totally forgot to mention, and I just remembered when you said how incredibly fast-paced this movie is. Uh, this is the first movie, a Mabuza movie, not directed by Lang, yes, but yes. by another director. And that director is indeed Harald Reinl. And um, David Callard, the guy who wrote uh, a book about the Mabuza movies, a very, very good book. Oh, and yes. he also did some audio commentaries for all three Lang uh, Mabuza films. Um, I recently, just in preparation for this for this podcast, came across a quote that he had, and he said that what De Palma is for Hitchcock, Rinal is for Lang. And I love this quote, and although I've had it mulling around in my head for the last couple of days, I'm still not sure if I agree, but I love this quote. <laughs> and it, it's really interesting because he, he did indeed... In a lot of ways, step into Lang's footsteps. He 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 produced similar kind of movies. Yeah. But he was, you know, he was more into action. 
you know, whereas Lang was more cerebral, if you like, although of course he did he did have some entertainment, uh, entertaining chase sequences and so on, but it, it he he was more of an action director, and um, he he indeed also shot the Nibelung in the 1960s, which was of course a silent movie from Lang. So he actually remade um, some some Lang movie as well afterwards, not just continue Lang saga, and he did tons of. The Wallace Krimis, he did the Karl May Western, he did yeah. Jerry Cotton. He did a lot of supposedly family-friendly entertainment, though although I, I noticed, and maybe it's just me, maybe it says more about me than about, you know, you know, Rinal himself. Um, I, I always felt he had a bit of a thing for you know, bondage because nearly every film uh, has somebody <laughs> tied up and having to free themselves. Um, and very, very notably, he was also married to Karen Dorr. Um, yes. Miss Krimi herself, who we will see in the next film then. And they married when she was only 16, but she faked her age, the marriage certificate. Um, that's why for a long time there was a bit of confusion how old she really is. She pretended she was 18, and he was like 30 years as her senior or something. But oh my they got on like a house. He discovered her. He, she was... She had a small, tiny part in some some film that he directed, and he discovered her. Two of them fell madly in love or lust, ended up marrying. Um, it didn't last. They did get divorced, but she always spoke very, very highly of him. And, you know, she he probably should have stayed with her. Probably. Because yeah. his next wife ended up stabbing him to death. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, granted, that was in the 80s, but still. That's that was in the uh, 80s, but still. still Karen Dorr would not have done that. that. that yeah, Karen Dorr <laughs> seemed a much more sane choice. And, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, here's the thing about Rinal is that I, of course, discovered his stuff. Um, and he and I and this will this will tell you what kind of weird life I lead. Uh, when I started introducing my my dear girlfriend to the uh, Krimi films, she loved she she loves them. She's she's a major you know murder mystery fanatic. Reads the, you know reads them. She's the driving force behind uh, watching uh, Sherlock Holmes films and things like that. So she fell into the Krimis like she just found a better roses man. She thought they were awesome, and so we started going through these things. And she quickly realized that as soon as she saw that that name as the director, we're in for a good one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this one's gonna be this one's gonna be great. This one's gonna be better than the average. I can't wait to watch this. And so uh, that name I will forever first associate. I'll, uh, Harold Rinal will always be the the crimmy guy to me, but. He made two of these great Mabusa films as well, yeah. which, you know, not much separates them, I'll admit. But, man, these are... He, he, he to me, if, if you're going to make that that parallel to Brian De Palma, maybe that does mm-hmm. kind of work, especially, you know, all the way up through, say, the late 80s, early 90s for De Palma. I can see that as a, as a kind of one-to-one comparison to a degree. So it's not a it's not a it's not a bad way to look at it. I, I just mm-hmm. I just know that the guy knows how to make films that really really entertain me. So yeah, what I love about this particular one is also that um, you know there's, there's there's so many different elements to it. I mean there's there's the the the, the Chicago gang syndicate, but but we also have um, um, a gang of blind men yeah. obeying orders through loudspeakers in a pulpit, which is. Um, you know, very similar to um, Dead Eyes of London, um, Edgar Wallace film. Um, Mabuse is trying to create kind of like a, you know, an army of zombies to to um, 
attack a nuclear reactor. Um, there's there's, there's um, some amazing scenes um, in, uh, you know, bondage scenes, basically, where, you know, they have to free themselves and... Um, well, I mean, come on, this is, this, this is the only movie in this series that features a woman being killed by a flamethrower, so... Absolutely, I mean, how, how, how gruesome is this? There's some amazing scenes there. They don't play with this in later films, sad, sad to say, but the fact that at one point Loman's looking through a book whose thesis is, thesis is that the, the devil is a spirit that can manifest to do evil in different forms. And the, the major chapter headings are werewolf, vampire, and one of the chapter headings is Dr. Mabusa. And, keep... and that is exactly what I wanted to say. That is ah, exactly oh, okay. what I wanted to say, because speaking of, of the way that we don't really have a proper continuity, uh, because nobody thought along the lines of continuity in the 1960s. That's just the modern concept over the last, whatever, 20 years or thereabouts. Mm, 34. All yeah. of a sudden, like in the first movie, he was a copycat. Yeah. And, you know, the old Mabuse is dead. We have a copycat and so on. And then from one movie to the other, he's no longer an unknown copycat. Now he is basically, you know, an archetype for evil along the lines of uh, werewolves, vampires, and and so on. Um, one of the things that's a bit frustrating is is that uh, Price himself doesn't feature all that much. And the annoying thing is we have a prison director in it. And that prison director has has masks or death masks or whatever of, of the most famous mass murderers in his, in his office. And that guy is played by an Italian actor whose name totally escapes me right now. And and every any time uh, I see uh, this... Fausto Tozzi? Yep, I think that's him. Anytime I see him in that film, I feel like he looks so much like Price. Why couldn't they use yeah. Price? Yeah, that's... Yeah. <laughs> Why couldn't they use Price? <laughs> It's that that you're right. That is kind of strange. Uh, to the point where I did wonder whether or not we're supposed to. Was the original idea to cast this guy so that we could pull a, a like a double reveal later in the film where they are the same person, but they don't do that. So I don't know. Yeah, and of course. Werner Peters repeats, um, does a repeat appearance, um, probably in his least impressive part in the series where he is a prison doctor. And we should probably also highlight Adi, Adi Berber, who is kind of like German's version, Germany's version of uh, Tor Johnson or Milton Reed. So he's like an ex-wrestler <laughs> who actually had an enormous acting background. He came from a very prestigious acting school. But whenever he's in films, he always plays the kind of like brutish guy uh, often like zombie like stalking through the um the the place and, and killing people off and he has a similar role in, in this particular movie yeah he exits this movie pretty quickly though he did through a window <laughs> <laughs> yes, in, in, in a glorious fashion um, yeah what i do love is in, in this particular one is, is actually also the ending very, very much the ending. When everything is finished, there is there is a fantastic soliloquy by Fervis' character. Yes. Um, um, where he basically overlooks the hustle and bustle of Berlin from his, from his office and muses about, you know, the anonymous masses. And, you know, anybody of those anonymous masses could indeed be uh, Dr. Mabuse. It's very low-key, but very, very efficient. It is such a creepy way to end the film, and it is, and it is one of the reasons why when that movie ends, every time I watch it, it just makes me very, very pleased with it overall because there are a number of different ways that you can go with these kinds of movies, and rarely, if 
Mm. Like, ever do they choose this kind of ending. And it's like, yes, yes, all the action has already happened. Things have been wrapped up. But this final, this final, and you're right to call it a soliloquy because he's just, he's, he's supposedly talking to the other people in the room, but he's looking out the window at, at, you know, at the street, at people walking by and giving these thoughts. It's just powerful as hell. And it sends a chill up your spine. It's great. Yeah. And, and that is actually what reminded me of the Sherlock Holmes movies, because a lot of the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movies, at least the wartime ones, they end up on a very positive note where Basil Rathbone, you know, preaches about hope for the future and all this kind of stuff. And this is more like a downer, but it's kind of like Basil Rathbone, but as a downer. Yeah, it's it's a it's more of a call to stay on your guard. <laughs> this is yeah. you need to you need to Absolutely. be you need to be wary of those around you, and and it's, it's yeah it's because dark. because th- that's that's the whole thing about Mabuse as well, and um and and it's never really properly spelled out. It it comes out very good in the in the original novel because in the original novel, you know, Mabuse has tons and tons of different. Um, um, aliases so the the police is investigating every one of the aliases and all the aliases lead him lead them to innocent citizens so one of them may be you know harmless old age pensioner who is like you know this alias and the other one oh he's just a handyman and then all of a sudden they stumble across the name Mabuza and then they realize okay there's nobody there so it must be him so, you know there's, there's this whole idea that yeah. there is really no Mabuza so it must be him it could be anybody it's like a real anonymous anonymous mass um, could be couldn't be hidden anywhere, and that, that kind of reminds me very much of the literary Mabuza. All right, let's move on to the next in the series, which I think is um, it's one of it, it, it's one that I I get a lot of joy out of, but I can understand yeah. why a lot of people would would kind of uh, give you know kind of give it the side eye to a degree. It's the Invisible Doctor Mabuza from nineteen sixty. Interestingly enough. If somebody put a gun to my head now and made me forced to choose, there is a possibility that given the time of day or whatever, I may pick this as my current favorite. Oh, really? Okay. Um, I honestly I honestly can't pick favorites. I, I thought about it in preparation of the podcast. I really can't. For me, every one of those Mabuza films, it, you know, they have roughly the same concept, but they're all totally different in lots of different ways. And for me, pretty much every one of the Mabuza films is is a 7 out of 10. The series as a whole for me is an 8 out of 10. The individual films for me are more like a 7 out of 10. Some are more of a stronger 7, others are more of a weaker 7. But by and large, I pretty much get the same amount of enjoyment. And, you know, I I could probably make a case for nearly everyone, maybe with the exception of the last one. Yeah, I was about to say. It's it's kind of like a weak 7 for me. It's like a weak... We have the Leo Gann character. That that last one is not a a 7 for me. That last (laughs) one one plummets to about a 5 out of 10 for me. I'll be... I I get that. I get that. (laughs) So here's the thing about uh, the... They are... Trying at least with the Invisible Doctor Mabusa to to do yeah. something different. This is kind of uh, Doctor Mabusa meets the Phantom of the Opera. Absolutely, and that is perfectly okay with me. Meets the Invisible Man. Meets the Phantom of the Opera. I know, and and that's and that's where you get into this <laughs> thing where uh, I, I've always talked. I've talked for years about how much uh, how much of a joy I get out of things in the in the world of the Valdemarodinsky films by Paul Nashi, where. Mm-hmm. You know, why had no one ever thought before Paul Nashi to make a film in which 
both a werewolf and Doctor Jekyll exists. It's you know, it, it took him until the seventies. What what what, <laughs> what what are you people idiots? Where's the creativity? What are you doing with your life that you have not come up with this before? And so in, to to see this movie throwing all of this is like you know, Mabusa, Invisible Man, Phantom of the Opera, basic idea. Uh, throw it all into a giant pot, stir it around, see what the hell happens. By the way, you also get to see Lex Barker and Karen Dorr. So what are you complaining about? I love this film. Plus, we have some Grand Guignol-style execution in the theater. Oh, I know. I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed that. The Ah, oh, that was great. Uh, and and, and I'll, I will say there comes a point where we've seen that kind of climax to the, the, the stage production uh, several times, and... You know, any anyone watching a thriller who sees that kind of thing play out on a stage in front of an audience knows, well, we're coming back to that. <laughs> That's going to play into something in the third act. I'll just bet you money. And the um, the the fact that we see that several times more, you know, more than three or four times as the movie goes on started to make me think, well, wait a minute. Are they not going to come back to that? Are we going to ignore <laughs> it? It's like, no, nope, no, nope, that's a double bluff. We're going to get there. Don't worry. But <laughs> this film has, there's so there's so much going on in this movie, and I, I really do enjoy it. I will say we are talking about a, a budget-conscious film. So don't be mm-hmm. looking for, uh, except in a couple of scenes where they did kind of impress me, don't look for high-level Invisible Man special effects in this thing. There are some good there's some good scenes. Most of the time, they're accomplishing the Invisible Man effect with uh, the old, you know, the old standbys of, uh, you know, things, uh, things on wires and things being mm-hmm. moved uh, by uh, uh, out-of-view sticks or poles or however they're doing it. But that hardly that hardly keeps this from being entertaining. Um, mm-hmm. The 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 uh, the character that uh, Karen Dorr plays is uh, much like she is simply adorable, and mm-hmm. everything in this works more than the special effects. I'll I'll mm-hmm. continue to doff my hat to anyone who would bow out because they they were sneering at that. That's why that's why I I could understand because they're they're biting off a bit more than they can chew with that in this but they aren't shoving it in your face and they're getting by with just enough of uh, the old on-screen tricks that everybody uses to get by with this mm-hmm. kind of effect. And once again, for the second and last time, sad to say, we have Joe Como, FBI man, who uh, is front and center in this story. He gets interested in this uh, this review theater, uh, not for the obvious reason, uh, Karen Dorr, but because there is a uh, a transport transport firm that's nearby that uh, seems to be involved in uh, nefarious. Uh, he doesn't know about the goals yet, but there's there's definitely something criminal going on from what he can tell. Mm. He's he's uh, Como's been getting mysterious uh, threatening letters. And uh, he becomes convinced that Dr. Mabusa has uh, once again somehow risen again. Starts hearing rumors about uh, some kind of secret project called Enterprise X. And so uh, when he untangles what's going on with that government operation, uh, we start to figure out who the mad genius in this uh, plot. Let's let's, let's use the word plot. Uh, (laughs) Find out who this mad genius is. And the question becomes, is it Dr. Mabusa? So this one 
this shows the this shows the 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 series in my mind still really firing on every cylinder that it can possibly mm-hmm. pour fuel into. It's really cooking along. This one's a lot of fun. There's mm-hmm. a a real energy to it. Once again, just like the last one, this thing moves quickly. Sometimes with a film like this, you start to wonder, especially in my case when I'm watching these uh, one after the other because I'm I'm treating them like potato chips and just wolfing them down because, hey, that was fun. Let me have another salty snack slash excellent yep. little crime film. I wonder if the fast pace is there to keep me from noticing plot holes or inconsistencies or something of that nature. But I don't I don't find any of those kinds of things here, especially mm-hmm. you know, rewatching it, trying to, you know, trying to see how well did they hide the ball, did they did they trick me at certain points? No, this one's just a it's another tight little crime film. It's well it's well done and a lot of fun. And I think yeah, and, and, and I mean I, I I do love the fact that there that there's a a mix Often of on the one hand the gothic elements that you're we're probably known more for the you know the crimmies and so on, but then there's also more more of a sci-fi approach that during the course of the series gets more and more influential. Um, and 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 again, you know, you you mentioned James Bond and 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 Eurospy. The fact that we have an arch villain who um, comes up with ever more sci-fi based um, approaches to taking over the country, the world, yeah. whatever. Um, is is that is, is something that is gradually going to increase in, with that series? Well, even with this film, we're only up to 1962, and yeah. uh, that means that we are right at the beginning. I mean, 1962 is when Doctor No came out, and so yeah. there, as that series goes along and becomes the most popular thing on planet Earth, uh, mm-hmm. it it does start to shift more and more into the science fiction realm itself until the you know the point where we're talking about a uh, a rocket launch in uh, uh, 1967 uh, that you know bring brings things to a not to mention the the uh, incredibly gigantic you know la- layer in the volcano in that same film you only yeah. live twice and the gradual increasing science fictional elements that come into this i think unfortunately do lead us to the the death ray mirror of of the last film which you know it's just it's what it is it's it is uh it is that thing that is pushing the story forward it's the it's the MacGuffin. And it doesn't really mm-hmm. factor all that, you know, all that well into things. We don't, you know, we're not trying to build it. It's just something that others are seeking. But at this point in the series with the Invisible Doctor Mabusa in '62, this this thing is th- these things are still so tight and so effective. And I just think we should we should take a, a moment to nod our nod our head toward the man responsible for the screenplays for so many of these things. Ladis um, Les Fodor. Exactly, and he, he, was, he was amazing. Um, amazing. Yeah, he he did five of those Mabuse, if I can't correct. I think he did all but the first one, if I remember this correctly. Yeah. But not only that, to to, to know that uh, only uh, a year or so ago, I finally caught up with uh, uh, James Whale's film, uh, "The Kiss Before the Mirror," which is based on a play mm-hmm. that he wrote, uh, and mm-hmm. then. Realize, you know, doing a little bit of research about that and learning uh, about how many uh, films that he had uh, written screenplays for in Hollywood, including, you know, Charlie Chan film, 
uh, a yep. really great Errol Flynn uh, thriller called Footsteps in the Dark, which I highly recommend. Um, he had a long career producing either the screenplays or his yep. stories and novels being used as the basis for films. And so when you get to uh, the early 60s and he is the one tapped to bring these screenplays before, you know, before the camera, he's been doing this a long time. He is an old hand. And so yep. watching what he's able to do here, the intricate nature of the of the plots and the characters, and uh, although I'll, I will grant uh, like anyone who's trying to be, you know, wide-eyed and clear thinking about these films that yes, of course, one of the things that these movies do not necessarily represent is a brilliant attention to character detail or growth, but that is not the point of these damn things anyway. Uh, and I would point out that uh, having seen things like uh, The Kiss Before the Mirror and a number of his other pieces of work uh, as, a, as a playwright, that you know, at least when they're turned into films, I can say that when called upon to do that, he could do that as well. So uh, mm -hmm. this is fun stuff. I'm a, uh, I would like to point out that he wrote some of my favorite of the Krimis as well. Phantom of, yeah. Phantom of Soho, which I don't think, uh, I think a lot of other people would kind of sneer at, but he also wrote Old Shatterhand and uh, Pyramid of the Sun God. And he's just one of those guys who I think was somebody that, you know, probably at this point completely forgotten except for people like you and me and other exactly. film nuts. But his body of work is simply astonishing. You, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, the um, Donovan's brain deep dive. My life is full of plans that I never realized. <laughs> uh, the deep Donovan's, uh, Donovan's brain deep dive uh, is one of them. Another one is I always wanted to do a Ladislas Fodor deep dive. And I wanted to do a, well, I've only recently come across the idea that I want to do a Thea von Harbour deep dive. That's something that, you know, when, when I was getting back into the Mabuse films in preparation for podcast, I was like, you know what? I really want to do a deep dive with Thea von Harbour. But Ladislas Fodor uh, was about two years ago or so when I kind of looked into him a bit more. And I was like, you know what? I really want to do a deep dive. And needless to say, I never did. But, uh, yep, yeah, it's um, bucket list. Oh, well, certainly. I mean, he wrote the screenplay for Tom Thumb, and I think it's his uh, it's his pen that's uh, responsible for something as completely different as a Grand Hotel in 1959. I mean, mm -hmm. you're not gonna get you're not gonna get into a rut where you're looking at the same kind of thing with this guy's career. He seemed to have been mm -hmm. able to uh, pull lots of different kinds of things off across the board, and so. I, I, what 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 a, what a career and doing a deep dive on him, I think that would pay off. That really would. Absolutely, absolutely. Because every time I come across his name, I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I love I loved it. I'm gonna do a deep dive. Never do, but no, he is he's well worth mentioning. I'm glad you you highlighted him. I had him on my notes and I totally ignored it. Um, fantastic. He needs he needs to be highlighted way way more than he usually does. It's totally unappreciated these days. Well, in Invisible uh, Dr. Mabusa, I'm just going to uh, I'm going to scoot us along, but I I will say that I really do one think One quick thing, one quick th actually two quick things. Number one, uh, Price is Mabusa. Yes. Did you spot him? Not really. The I thing, guess the thing about be... him is because he he for all intents and purposes, um, he only appears to be showing up at the very end when the mask is torn and yeah. he's in a burning room and then he goes mad which leads us over to the next film but in actual fact and it's something very easily overlooked and i 
raise my hands up the first one or two times that I watched the movie. I never even noticed it up until I saw the credits. He actually plays another character and he's masked so well, oh. I never recognized him. Oh, I never, right. never. Yeah. He, he plays the, basically the doctor who recommends Dor's character to visit the sanatorium. And he appears in a couple of other scenes. And he is so well masked. And he plays the role so well. I've I, even now, when I re rewatched it and I'd half forgotten, <laughs> I, I totally forgot. And said, oh, yeah, of course, it, it's him. And I had to rewatch, you know, some scenes again just to remind myself. Um, so although it appears as if he only shows up at the very end to go mad and then lead over to the next film, he actually has another role in it that most viewers, even if they know who Price looks like, will probably not recognize. It's actually quite an amazing performance, <laughs> which, but it's also a pity because he's he's the nominal, you know, anti-hero. He's the so, he's, he's the title. You know, in, in a way, it would be better if the makeup was worse, so we could actually realize, oh, it's actually him, as opposed to, you know, only after reading the credits, realize, oh, hang on, he was actually through, there throughout the film. Uh, it, w it would be like an extra little kick for the for the film fan, but I I don't know. I don't know if even people at the time would have would have found it to be a satisfying. No, I, I'd, say, I'd yeah. say a lot of people had noticed it, and we need to also mention Werner Pe Peters' a third yeah. appearance, maybe his best in 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 the series, because uh, he plays the managing director of the transport company. But and I dare say it's not a spoiler, although you know, hopefully not. he also plays uh, the clown Bobo. And the reason why it's not a spoiler is because it's pretty obvious that it's him. Oh, yeah, it's the same actor. Uh, the it, only person yeah. who doesn't notice it is Joe Como himself. And, and I know <laughs> no. Joe Como is perfection and, you know, man crush and what have you. <laughs> but dude... You know, look at him. It's, it's Vanna Peters. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't matter that he's got the clown makeup on. Look at his he's face. a sadistic clown. Yes, I know. Look at him. It's the same guy. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So the next film in the series is, um, well, this is a weird one. This one you can say is both a sequel and a remake. Testament of Dr. Mabusa, 1962. Yeah, it's it's really weird because if you think about it, I mentioned before that Arthur Brauner, the producer, he stated that the original Testament of Dr. Mabusa was the film that really changed his life. He was so wowed by it. He wanted to get into films, became a major Fritz Lang fan. So uh, it, 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 the original film meant so much to him. So the next step is now that uh, the fourth film in, in the 1960 series is indeed both a remake as well as a new interpretation of Norbert Jack's novel that only came out in 1950, although it was conceived and written in conjunction with the original film. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's also a seamless continuation of the 1960s saga. So it's all over the place. It's a, but yeah. it's effectively a remake and continuation. It's a bit like uh, it's it's a bit like a, a plate of fruit salad. It's a, there's a little bit of everything in there. It just yeah. The uh, we we have Inspector Loman returning in this film. Um, he is indeed, and he claims to the um, director of the um, of the institution that that Mabuse is in and going mad in uh, that he's the one responsible for getting Mabuse into the institution which he was not again you no, know nobody no. thinks about continuity but Mab but Lohmann was not in the previous film so he was in no way responsible for getting him in into the institution but according to the film Lohmann uh, claims that it was him who brought him in there and he was and it wasn't 
this one this one is a this one's a blast this one is actually yeah. um, uh, you, it, all a blast well I, I know that but it, it does become that thing where I get I get on the seesaw about which one I like you know slightly more than others uh, and this one this one's way up there but I'm mm-hmm. I, this there's there's a there's a lot good to talk about in this film it doesn't have uh the 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 wonky things that you kind of have to give the the invisible uh man effects in the previous film but not that that really drags that movie down at all but this is you know yet another film that starts with uh inspector loman investigating a string of crimes uh they seem to resemble mabusa's mo because they're incredibly well planned but Mm -hmm. at this point uh mabusa is very obviously ensconced in uh, an insane asylum uh, mm-hmm. presided over by professor Polland. And this is uh, he's been, he's been locked away for years and years, but when these crimes start to occur, no one knows who the culprit is, but Loman senses something's going on now. Absolutely love the scenes in the insane asylum where we see. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. I, I, Wolfgang priests or price is price. in, in, this this frenzy of writing all of these these notes uh, backwards. Uh, everybody mm-hmm. acknowledges quickly, thank goodness, that what he's doing is writing in a way that can only be read in uh, a reflection of a mirror, which is, of course a, is a nice bit of uh, of subtext that the movie just slides right by. I think I think it's I think it's great though. And the uh, when uh, they start examining these with an eye toward whether or not these are uh, somehow being communicated outside of the insane asylum to people who are carrying out these crimes, that of course does seem to be what's happening. Although it, because of the nature of how he's writing these things and the the jumbled way in which this stuff is being communicated on paper, it takes a good long while before they they figure that out. But I love watching, and, and that's one of the the joys of of this film is watching all the crimes being done. Oh, absolutely. There is, uh, first of all, a great Lieutenant character, Mort- the Mortimer character. Yeah. Who's, uh, Charles, uh, played by Charles Renier. Right. Who's being given the orders by the, uh, you know, behind, you know, behind a, a screen, uh, Dr. Mabusa, who's really the, the, the guy who's keeping every, everyone in line, getting everything. He's just taking the plans and, and, and putting them into place and running everybody through their places so that they can carry out these heists. It's a blast. This movie spends a, a, a lot of time uh, on these crimes, and that's a good thing because they're exciting and interesting and fun to watch. And, and, and the character played by Renier is just so good. He's like so suave and debonair, yep. and um, you know, even when he does a, you know, train postal train robbery um he kind of nonchalantly passes change for bus to security staff mm-hmm. because you know they're held up in the middle of nowhere and they need to make the whole the whole uh, their way back he's like so good in it and and it's kind of like one of those things that renier always played he always played those kind of like very very um you know gentlemanly suave um kind of like characters uh, he's he's magnificent in it until seeing this film it is a uh, I had never, uh, never known anything about that particular actor, and then I look into his career and realize, wow, he was well. First of all, he had an incredible life, but also just yeah. an incredibly busy actor, and uh, just yeah. one of those. His performance in this is one for the ages. He is, he is suave. He is calm. He is one of those men who seems to have been, you know, been prepared in this film, been prepared for 
every eventuality mm-hmm. by Mabusa, but it's just it's 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 a great performance, and it's it's in a film that holds his character in high esteem. It really puts him in a position to be really kind of the the third character in in this situation who's the main mover and shaker he's the you know he the the, the part he plays is of a of the main lieutenant the 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 person yeah. moving moving the the criminal troops through their paces and he's just effortless at it it's it's a great performance one that i really get a kick out of oh, he's he's amazing he he does uh, tend to drop very very specific cigars everywhere yep. which is going to be his downfall um but hey nobody's perfect nope 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 and I, I like the way he even even when he needs to uh to kill a traitor in the group he manages to do it in a way that keeps his hands clean uh yeah <laughs> very very clever stuff um the the professor the pro- professor poland character played by uh mm-hmm. uh was it walter rila he's in another great character something that i really something i really enjoy seeing in this is is someone who is so assured so calm and completely wrong it's like no this information is getting out of here my friend this is yeah and, and the thing about it is that it won't come as a surprise for anyone who listens a little bit further into the podcast um to the next film then to realize that um price passes the baton over to the real character yeah. uh, professor poland um, because, uh, but you're never going to. Of fit, course, you, people who already know the original uh, Testament of Dr. Mabuza, yeah. uh, the the, uh, the the classic one, um, basically, Mabuza manages to hypnotically manipulate a very very kind, nice professor um, into committing all those terrible, terrible, terrible crimes. Yeah. Um, by the way, do you know who um, Rilla's son was? Oh, the, I real think I, ca- the real. I think I read it, but I can't remember. Yeah, he was he was the father of Wolf Riller, Wolf Riller. who became ah. the director of Village of the Damned. That's right. Because uh, because Riller emigrated to Britain in the early in thirty four or thereabouts, and um, because he in Germany he was known as a as a communist activist, and he also married uh, was married to a Jewish wife, and then in uh, Britain, um, uh, uh, they you know he. Uh, uh, his, his son Wolf Ritter was born, and gradually he became a director himself. And his most famous film is there is then uh, Village of the Damned. And uh, Walter Ritter is another one of those characters who, uh, persons uh, who people who can speak so many different languages. And some of I've, I've recently watched Candlelight in Algeria uh, from '44, and he speaks German, English, and French there as an urbane Nazi officer, and it's quite quite impressive. Um, he also filmed with Jess Franco at a later stage and was in a Fu Manchu movie as well. And he's a really, really good actor. And especially in this particular film, he he's able to both play a really kind, very, very, um, you know, nice, authoritative um, um, person, but at the same time, also um, quite a cruel new Mabuse because uh, Price passes the tongue over to um, to um, to Rilla. It's it's well done. It is a it is a hell of a film, and I know that at this point, anyone listening to this who's not familiar with these movies will start to think that we're essentially repeating ourselves by praising <laughs> by praising these films. And I was this just, is good. This is good. But Watch I, it. I, I just want to I just want to assure people, hang on, that ain't gonna last. So uh, yeah, there is the last one. I, I probably like it a bit, but yeah, the last you know, 
Yeah. Okay, so this uh, Testament of Dr. Mabusa, the remake slash sequel, was the fourth of the films. That's the fourth one. And then we There's get, still two more to come. Yes, so the fifth one. Let's talk about it. Um, one of my favorite titles, I'll grant that. Uh, Scotland Yard hunts Dr. Mabusa or Scotland Yard versus Dr. Mabusa. Of course, all of these films mm-hmm. have multiple titles depending on where they, uh, yeah. where they were being attempted to be sold. But... This one is, uh, I just always think of this one as uh, the one with Klaus Kinski. So, uh, we, we... Very true. The one with Klaus Kinski as a good guy, but still very, very edgy. Uh, yes, a good guy who gets, uh, you know, t- taken over and turned into a bad guy for a period of time. Spoiler alert! Uh, well, it still makes him a good guy because, you know, Mabuza wants to create lots and lots of mindless zombies to create, to kill VIPs. True, very true. And, and in order to do that, he has something like a photo camera kind of thingy that once it flashes, the, he can control the minds of those people. And there is actually a very, very good scene where uh, a postman gets forced to kill a character. And that postman, of course, is not a killer. And uh, he, I, I don't even know who that, who that, who that actor is. Um, he's, he's just a small little role and he plays it so well when he realizes that oh my god what have i done i've killed somebody and i can't remember why did i do that oh yeah his scene Um, his scene of confessing to the police he seems so he's so obviously completely puzzled but he's he's telling him i know i did it but i don't know why yeah Yeah. this this is basically what the plans to do well this kind of extends the idea because we i mean we start this film with uh at least it's carrying this over uh, from the previous movie, where we have uh, the 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 uh, Walter Rilla character, who is you know possessed by the spirit of the evil Doctor Mabusa, mm-hmm. uh, he's still playing Professor Pullman, and mm-hmm. uh, this new Doctor Mabusa begins a, a fresh crime wave. Big shock! Uh, if if you're not if you're expecting that to not happen in one of these films, you've not been paying attention, <laughs> and uh, things of course. Get out of hand. We have Peter Van Ick showing back up again, this time as Major Bill Turn. Turn is, you know, spelled like the bird, T-E-R-N. But I will admit, that is not the most out-of-the-ordinary name in this film, because this <laughs> film sports a character named George Cockstone. And I can hear the snickering from here, folks. <laughs> Trust me. And the Ooh. person you can blame for that is not a German, because usually you can blame all those weird names on the Germans who created those characters, like Jerry Cotton. I mean, it sounds really cool when you hear it as a German, but as an English speaker, it's probably Cotton, Jerry Cotton. Cotton. That's, that's a last name. Weird. That's, that's the last name. Because, in, indeed, the the person who created those characters was, I think I mentioned before, Brian Edgar Wallace. Uh, yep. He was the son of Edgar Wallace. And this film is based on the novel The Device by Brian Edgar Wallace. And it's, it's also the only novel by Brian Edgar Wallace that I read. And it's a really, really good novel. Uh, I think he was once quoted as saying himself that, oh, you know, even my best books are nearly not even half as good as my father's one. But, you know, his father's ones, I'm an Edgar Wallace fan, but I'm not entirely sure I always like his books. I like the idea of a Wallace book often better than the books because the yeah, you know, Edgar yeah. Wallace books were hastily written and there are some clunkers in it. But this particular one, the device that the only one that I read by Brian Edgar Wallace is actually really, really, really good. And the film by and large sticks to the 
to the um, to the general plot, but adds Mabuse, uh, and both of those characters, um, Turn as well as Cockstone, appear in the device. In fact, Turn is a character that appears in at least another one other Brian Edgar Wallace book um, that um, was was then also adapted. And Cockstone in the film in the book um, was a quasi Mabusian character who planned it all and in the film his character kind of gets divided in two on the one hand there is Mabuse himself on the other hand there is the character called Coxon but in the book he was a quasi Mabusian character but not from Mabuse of course and Browner the producer of, um, following up from the Rialto Edgar Wallace series you know he always tried to also Browner tried to create other series that, that rival Rialto he um basically got the rights to Brian Edgar Wallace's books and adapted them. And a lot of times, I don't even think the books existed. They, he just claimed <laughs> this is a Brian Edgar Wallace book. Yes. And the handy thing with the name Brian Edgar Wallace is that for two-thirds it matches Edgar Wallace. So a lot of times when they promoted the Brian Edgar Wallace series of films, they had a, a teeny tiny Brian on the poster and a gigantic Edgar Wallace underneath it so it appears if it was another Edgar Wallace when indeed it was a Brian Edgar Wallace are you telling so me yes, they, are you telling me that a movie yeah. producer was misleading the public <laughs> I believe he was I ah, believe he was my, yeah. suddenly all my illusions about filmmaking are shattered <laughs> but, but, but it, it's really interesting that all of a sudden like you have you have the, 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 the parallel series of Brian Edgar Wallace Krimis uh, produced by, by Browner and at the same time, he uses that same author to continue the series of Mabuse films. And this was the one film where the name Brian Edgar Wallace really wasn't used in the promotional material, at least as I can see. Although in a lot of ways, it was probably the most faithful adaptation of any of the Brian Edgar Wallace. Yeah, um, I read books. that in your book. And that, I think that's, yeah. that's such an odd thing to note. That's very strange. Yeah, because it is, like apart from the fact that you know the 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 novel device doesn't feature Mabuza. Uh, by and large, it's it's fairly faithful. You know, there's there's differences. Something has changed, but you know, you can you can you can, you can recognize it. Wow. Well, it's it's yet another fun, fast film. Uh, I I don't if I look kind of you know with with squinted eyes, I can start to see why they probably felt that they needed to start bringing in some kind of other influence here in other words let's mm -hmm. let's bring in mm -hmm. a, a different a different plot line a different story uh, genesis uh, just to try to give us some kind of push in this in a different direction because mm -hmm. at this point my goodness you know we're we're five films into this and they're they're pushing these things out as quickly as they can I mean this one remember folks the thousand eyes the restart of this mabusa uh, series or the start of this 1960 series was in 1960 and this is the fifth film and we're only in 1963 so you've got to understand these were being made in a quick fashion and so at a certain point it's the same production team it's the same script writer uh it's not the same director uh, they are they are changing changing director seats pretty frequently past the the uh, and the we actually one. didn't even mention the director in the previous film um, because because realistically none of those are big name directors anymore one of them you know testament was Werner Klingler who you know main claim to fame was that Mabuse film effectively yeah. and the director here was Paul Mai who 
you know, he 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 shot a lot of successful enough German films, uh, predominantly the zero eight fifteen war movies, uh, which were adaptations of the Gunnar Ash um, novels. Um, so yeah, he was he was he was a routine director, but no, none of the big names like Fritz Lang or Harald Reinhold. So by this film, um, this the, first of all, it's a, it's a good story. I enjoyed it. It's a it's a good film. But even as a viewer, I'm starting to see why uh, why the the seams are starting to show a little bit. Um, we may have pulled the trigger on this a little too frequently uh, in too short a period of time. Although this is still a hell of a fun film, and we haven't yet mentioned one of the big reasons why it's such a fun fil- uh, film, because Peter van Eyck's mother in the film is amazing. Is such a wonderfully dotty old lady, played by Agnes Windeck. She is so dotty. Loves reading primy books. I think even like by Edgar Wallace. She always has like one of those crime novels next to her bedside. And she's, um, she's, she's the smartest so character in the film. She is. She knows all the solutions. She looks at a TV program. And is like, yeah, you know, this is what happened. Here's a conspiracy. You know, follow this track. She's amazing. I just thought I uh, about halfway through the film, I went, oh, she's essentially Mother Marple. That's what she is. <laughs> she is Miss Marple in in German form. And yeah. It, it, Major Bill Turn is just lucky enough to have her as his mom because she is much more clever than he is. <laughs> she figures all this Wait. all this shit out, and it's it, it is not it is not afraid to tell everybody. Okay, here's what's going here's what's going on. That seems to be obvious over there, and you know they'll discount her to a certain degree because she's oh she's just a dotty old woman. But past a certain point, they start to go with well, maybe we better listen to her because she was right <laughs> already. So it's, did you say listen to her? Yeah. Just did you say miss 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 me did you because it all it all Babu's plan all falls down by the fact that she is hard of hearing yeah yeah <laughs> and, and <laughs> there's okay so without giving too much away uh the uh the way in which people uh, well first of all people are uh, to a certain degree kind of uh co-opted they're taken over by uh a, cl- a, a, a the clever dr mabusa and uh the way in which uh, th- th- this not it's not really zombification not at all they're essentially kind of co-opted to to switch sides from uh the good to the bad uh by a, de- a device that dr mabusa has less less said the better just discovered in the film but it has to be re-upped periodically because it seems to only last about a day. Uh, essentially, if you take a good nap or sleep overnight, uh, the effect goes away. So uh, this uh, this you know this can, this can, this going to cause problems, especially when you think too hard about the uh, the the uh, intended uh, desire of uh, Mabusa's plan here, which seems 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 to be if you're going to have to re-up this for every individual that you put in, put under your spell every 24 hours that's a full-time job for an entire crew of people so um what we have here is the easiest way to disrupt this this um, co-opting this taking over of a person's personality uh has to do with a hearing aid and this gets discovered because one of the characters and the character is played by returning returning uh actor uh uh, werner peters Mm -hmm. because he has he's got deafness in one ear 
Uh, well, it turns out that that is the trick to do undoing this uh, this takeover of an individual plays heavily into the third act, and I I, I, I did not find it. You know, this was my first viewing of this film. This I did not find this to be uh, as uh, silly as some uh, critics have thought that it is, but. I can understand how uh, that would seem to maybe be a hurdle for some people to get past. I thought it was kind of clever, but I thought it was something that, you know, they you have to have a way. And, well, that seems like it might work. The the box. I love it when she shows up with the box of of hearing aids, yeah. and it's like, oh, so she's not only super smart, she's also clever enough to go. I think you people are going to need this to warehouse and purchase yeah. gazillion hearing aids. She's amazing. She's she is the forget Major Bill Turn, forget him, tell with him. It's his mom. She should have been the one with the badge and the gun, and just. I want a series of films just with her. I know. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a completely missed opportunity here to have not turned her into an ongoing series character in the 1960s. Absolutely. I mean, what a blast! I would have loved to see her character face Mabuza face to face, or just start taking down other criminals as well from from her from Take her down living Spectre. room from her living room, man. Absolutely. Amazing stuff. We also have Adi Berber again in a tiny, tiny role, but a wonderful role because he plays an executioner who, under the influence of, this, of, of the device, simply opts to hang himself rather than the prison inmate. <laughs> yeah, I, yes, yes. This is, a, this is a fun film and one that I, I do thoroughly enjoy, but it was yep. sad when I advanced to the sixth and final film in the series. To realize that uh, it's the weakest. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I agree. It's yeah. it's the weakest. It's the one that has the most promise because it's it's definitely a, a bigger co-production. They go abroad, like yeah. you know, previously they sh- they shot uh, in studio or maybe in some germ side streets and so on. Um, it, it was it was definitely more like a germ production, but now it's a, it's it's an it's an international co-production. They move to Malta. We have a lot of outside scenes, foreign scenes. It is actually a proper Euro spy feel for it you know where um peter van eyck's character effectively the same one from the previous film but yes he has a different name um my guess probably because browner didn't have the rights to brian edgar wallace's character so he just uh had to change the name um has has to go abroad to um prevent yet another one of mabuza's nefarious schemes this one, it really is the weakest of the lot. Uh, yeah. If it weren't for not really the last few minutes, but the last act, mm-hmm. which and, and all of the last act doesn't really work either. Mm-hmm. But there's some great stuff in the final third that really kind of elevates it above being um, not not particularly great. It's still mm-hmm. the weakest of the entire thing. Oh, by the way, the name of it is the Death Ray or the Death Ray Mirror of Doctor Mabusa, also known as the Secret of Doctor Mabusa. It's sad when we when we're talking about this series of films to be able to say that the standout stuff for me is that well it was it was filmed it was filmed in Malta it kind of looks great the Mediterranean vistas well I mean you know. from your perspective it was filmed by a Balnashi director well yeah he uh, the the director of this uh, is it Hugo forgot I'm gonna Fregonese I guess that's that, that sounds good I believe he was Argentinian. So, um, I, yeah, yeah. I think so, well, he's the guy who shot about 70% of what eventually became Assignment Terror. Um, mm-hmm. so you know, 
not the best of the, the, the werewolf movies that Paul Nash. He made, also but. shot Man in, Man in the Attic, which which is Jack a film that I, which is a film I do like the the Jack Palance yeah Jack the, Jack the Ripper, Ripper movie yeah. starring Jack Palance. But uh, when we get to, by the time we get to this film, I can't I can't decide if they were running out if they just ran out of steam as a production company, mm. uh, as a group of people you know being you know being creative. I mean because this thing comes out in 1964. Uh, there, there have to have they have to be factoring in the fact that at in in sixty four, the James Bond phenomena is starting. Mm-hmm. By uh, sixty four, we've definitely got at least the first two, if not three. Well, the first two or three of the James Bond films out, and though they are taking off, they are becoming an an event kind of uh, cinema going experience. These kinds of movies are, are similar in tone, mm-hmm. but lesser in budget, and uh, also definitely not in color. These are all black and white films, and of course that does factor in no matter what anybody else may say about you know how mm-hmm. easy it is to get butts in seats. But there's a certain dullness that creeps into mm-hmm. the vast majority of the running time of this film, and that is the first time that I can say that about any mm-hmm. of these Mabusa films. Mm-hmm. I agree, but it still has a lot of fun elements. I mean, you, you mentioned the James Bond films. It has um, underwater fight scenes yeah. that are very, very similar to the ones in, was it in Thunderball? Thunderball Yet yeah. they came first. Now, I I won't ever genuinely say that uh, you know Broccoli had seen Mabuse or one of the Mabuse films and decided to copy it probably not it's probably just coincidence but it is still the fact that that one of the most crucial James Bond fight scenes underwater fight scenes well-known fight scene we saw that first in a Mabuse film and I also love the character um, um, that, uh, played by Leo. And now I'm the one who's, who's not sure about the pronunciation. <laughs> Is it Gen or Jen? Gen? Leo Gen? I've always, yeah, I've uh, always, always pronounced it Gen, but I'm not positive. I, I also, also did. I'm not, not too sure. Um, who plays the head of the British Counter Mabuse Initiative. And he's, one, he's probably the most bizarre character in all of the Mabuse films combined. He's, he's an admiral who's utterly grotesque. Yeah. He wears a cap to hide a metal plate in his skull, as well as a Fritz Langian-style eye, eye patch. His face is heavily scarred. He walks with an artificial leg and uses parts of the amputated limb to make up for his destroyed cheek. And, oh, he only has one arm. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And the thing is, he's as an actor, I've seen him in so many things. You and I being the, the Eurotrash <clears throat> fanatics, of course, we've seen him in... God, shall I start with Frightmare and work backwards, or mm-hmm. maybe Fr- Jess Franco's The Bloody Judge, or mm-hmm. uh, Lizard in a Woman's Skin, Die Screaming Marianne, mm-hmm. Circus of Fear. Hey, Circus of Fear is a good place to go. Um, yeah. I just recently finally caught up with the, the 1965 version of Ten Little Indians, in which he plays uh, the general character in that. And he's mm-hmm. just, he, he's, he's a good, solid actor. I mean, He's one of the few people on planet Earth who can say that he played a Starbuck in uh, a Moby Dick production in 1956. Yep. So, hell of an actor and such a weird character. I, I, I do wonder, <laughs> because of the strangeness of the character, some of it has to play into, you know, the, 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 the reason for building the character in such a strange way is to draw a lot of attention to him. So that when yep. 
as, as things start to progress during the plot of the film, as it unfolds, to kind of cast more doubt on him initially because there is such a, you know, there's so, there's so much odd about the character that surely he's a good candidate to possibly be our dastardly Mr. Mabusa. But... Mm-hmm. That uh, I, I, I won't give it away. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to cripple the the few joyful things within the, this particular last film of the series. But the oddity of building him this way, me, you know, sets set you up to to hope for a, a more interesting character, or at least more mm-hmm. interesting things to come down the pike from the from this character and the story in which he's in. And it's just. It doesn't really play out that way. The actor's doing his damnedest, but mm-hmm. honestly, it's the, the the story and the kind of flaccid direction is working against him a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things is it's. I mean, there's there's two major things that 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 that, that, that are the problem. Number one, Mabuza, as in uh, either Price or Rilla, practically don't feature. Like, if you come into this film and you miss the first few minutes or the last couple of minutes you'd be wondering where the hell is Mabuza because none of the other two actors really appear in it yeah. uh, instead everybody and their mother uh, could possibly be Mabuza which is actually a very Mabuzian thing to do if we go back to the original Norbert Jack uh, novel where everybody could potentially be Mabuza uh, but it just doesn't make for a good cinematic experience and the second thing that 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 um, um, isn't working is that the hero bit of an Ike um, he just doesn't make a good secret agent. He's no. as, as you mentioned before. I, I felt he doesn't make a good kind of like action hero. He's not a great romantic hero, and especially when we expect our our secret agents to be, um, you know, lady killers and so on. I mean, at one stage he has this 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 gorgeous babe that masks oh, no. as his fiance or something, and he, you know he he apologizes himself with having a headache. And in another stage. He um, goes to bed and uh, wears a bulletproof vest just to be on the safe side. It's it's truly strange, and <laughs> and the the actress who's playing his his fake girlfriend in this, who is um, she's she's clearly the, you know re- ready for the the sexual yeah. activity that she assumes is mm-hmm. going to take place, and is absolutely gorgeous. First of all, an interesting character. She's one of the more interesting characters in the film because mm-hmm. the curves that are thrown kind of mirror the astonishing curves the actress sports. <laughs> but she's she at least her presence in the film does add something that this film is sorely yep. lacking, which is yep. any kind of any kind of reason to keep watching it during that that middle section because there are a couple of points where the clothing she's wearing is so sheer that she might as well be wearing nothing. And um, mm-hmm. that's you know for, from my perspective, hey, thumbs up. But uh, it's it's not uh, it's not a good re- it's not a good reason for that to take pride of place within a, a section of the film that really should be much more interesting. Mm-hmm. No, I, I absolutely agree. Um, there is also Yvonne Furneau as a second female uh, character. She's good. She's she's of course of Hammer's Mummy fame and. Uh, um, I do think there was also a fantastic fight scene in a in a bell tower. Um, so I do think that the there's film has a lot of individual elements, but as a whole, in contrast to any of the other previous Mabuza films, as a whole, it just doesn't work as well as the previous five Mabuza films. Saying that, uh, I still like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course you do. Of course I do. 
Well, uh, all right. That uh, now that we've babbled for well over two hours about these six films, I have th- we? I thought we were going to stick to an hour or an hour and ten minutes. Or something. Yeah, we failed. Uh, <laughs> it didn't miserably. Work. It didn't. It didn't work out. We just kept talking, Holger. We <laughs> we we have we have failed in our mission to keep this short. So my apologies <laughs> to everyone if you've made it this far. Um, I I'm sorry. We we just couldn't shut up. I, I you know you you have my apologies and uh, if I ever if I ever meet you I will I will gift you with a shiny nickel. <laughs> Sorry, but uh, with any luck, sometime soon we will be able to be very happy that these films are made available to uh, the public at large outside of Germany, that would be so that they can that be, would be evaluated. Uh, I was going to say reevaluated, but in a lot of cases, other than Thousand Eyes, I think we're pretty safe in saying so that these films could just be evaluated period there's no reevaluation if you're unaware of them in the first place um let's cross our fingers and um and and hope to the to the cinema gods that somebody uh sees fit to put these films out in nice english friendly uh in a nice english friendly set um you know it'd be great there's six of them maybe you could do two sets of three or just do a big box set with all six, although two sets of three is probably the more price-conscious way to go about it. Yeah, well, uh, I have like the, the the germ set basically is all six of them together, which you know would be wondrous if that could happen. And to, to to see these movies who are there, there's there's so much about these movies. There's so much that could be done to supplement these films uh, in this day and age. It'd be great to see it be done, but keep our fingers crossed. Hope. Hope to the high heavens. Please, please send us a nice set of these things on Blu-ray. That would be so sweet. Uh, and more people can discover them. So, Holger, uh, where can people find you and your uh, written works, sir? Uh, well, most of my written works can be found on um, on Kindle. So pop over to Amazon. I There, there is this many masks detected, Dr. Mabuza. Uh I buy that for a dollar. It's ninety nine cent. <laughs> I also recently wrote um, "Yours Truly, Jack the Lodger," which basically is a similar concept, twenty thousand words or thereabouts, about the um, Jack the Ripper inspired adaptations on old time radio. And I have um, another, again, fifteen twenty thousand word booklet just for Kindle, Oliver's Last Round, which is basically a collection of articles in the centerpieces, uh, a travel article about how I met the man in whose arms Oliver Reed died in Malta. So I write a little bit about this, plus a couple of other articles. It's not just about uh, Oliver Reed. Again, 15,000, 20,000 words. Um, you can probably find me on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. For It's Twitter. Um, uh, come on. Yeah, it's Twitter. It's, it's Twitter for, for cult or pulp-related stuff. I do have a crimmy blog, but it's very moribund, which is an improvement on how it was two years ago where it was on life support. <laughs> um, so it's crimmyfilm.blogspot.com. Um, yeah, you know, I'll just Twitter, blog. Ideally, buy my books. 99 cent, you know. Yeah. Can't go wrong. So I'll just point people toward the mini masks of Dr. Mabusa for... Uh, if you if you want to know how to spell Holger's last name, I'm not going to let you know. Just go look the book up. <laughs> He's just lucky. Everybody gets it wrong anyway. <laughs> well, that, that's 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 just it. I'm sorry, but a double consonant, a double consonant, we can figure out. Du- double. We, we haven't even talked about the actor Oe Hasse 
H-A-S-S-E, who happens to be in the last Mabuse movie, and everybody misspells my name that way, but it is indeed H-A-A-S-E. Yes, yes it is. Uh, the Holger part is the easy part. Uh, strangely well say say you i told you the story about uh, me being invited to a wedding and the only way i could figure out the way i had to sit was because i guessed that the name ungarn must be me because it has at least one g correctly spelled <laughs> all the other letters were completely wrong it's insane <laughs> yeah it was u-n-g-a-n instead of h-o-l-g-e-r but the g was at the, at the correct spot in the middle so it was me hey i'm just i'm just proud i got your name right Without any without any you help from were you, amazing. Without any help from me, just you know, <laughs> your, your your natural inclination towards languages helped you along. I'm I'm a polyglot. I'm a genius. It's yeah. incredible. I, when we were preparing this, I just said I'm just so sorry that Jochen Fuchsberger isn't in that series because I would have loved to hear you mangle that name. Oh, I would have put at least two extra syllables in there and in the wrong <laughs> and in the wrong word and in the wrong name. It would have been like I, it would have been a, a complete fail on my part. But Holger, once again, thank you very much. People, if you have any you. comments about the Mabusa films or want to uh, praise Holger for uh, taking me to task and making fun of my pronunciations of different names, the place to write is thebloodypit at gmail.com. Drop us a note and we'll be glad to hear from you. But I'll just say, Holger, thank you for joining me and uh, maybe we can do this again in the future. Absolutely, anytime. We have Kamai Western movies. We have <laughs> uh, yes. You know. Now those are we, we we if we crack open the can of worms on uh, on those on those German westerns, that's going to be a that's going to be a absolutely a, yeah, sounds good. That's that's going to be fun. All right, we'll talk to everybody later. Bye, guys. Bye.